0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On
1: Worldview this week, first Paris, then Brussels, but the grim news of the twin blasts in Malbec and Zaventem and their horrendous death toll came as no surprise. The authorities have been on high alert, warning of just such an eventuality. But the shock and pain will be no less, and the fear that this may just be the beginning We'll also be hearing later in the show from I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to Suzanne Lynch. Can you describe the sense of shock in Brussels today?
0: Uh, Good afternoon. Where where I'm standing now, uh, Patrick, I'm just at the Schumann roundabout, uh, just beside the EU headquarters of the European Commission and the European Council. And about three or four hundred metres away from me, I'm looking down at Malbec metro station. That's the site of one of the explosions today that happened shortly after 9 a.m. I mean, it's extremely tense atmosphere. There's a very strong police presence here and helicopters swirling overhead, um, very strong media presence. Um, but really a sense of shock. This this place is this area of Brussels is usually packed. It's now eerily quiet and uh- Even hours since the blast, a number of emergency services, of ambulances, of police, of fire engines have have driven past where I'm standing now to the site down at the Malbec uh, station. So it's very much a a continuing story a few hours after this uh, event happened.
1: And this is very much the European heart of of Brussels, your your workplace, actually. And and Mm. I I would imagine that the trains would be full of people who work in the Commission or in the European Parliament or the, the, the European institutions. Is, the, is, the, is that community itself feeling under under attack
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the metro station in question is just a few hundred metres from these these buildings. And the metro line that was affected would be the line that most people take to work uh, who are going to work at the EU institutions. And I mean, there's nothing else really around here except EU buildings, maybe some apartment blocks, the odd restaurant, but it's very much EU headquarters. Uh, so there really is a sense of shock at this about what's ha- after happening. Also, the timing of this, um, the it was obviously timed the two attacks, the events in the airport and here to coincide with rush hour. The airport attacks happened just before 8 a.m. And uh, the metro explosion, uh, authorities are saying here, uh, took place at 9.11 a.m., just at the time people would be going to work here at the EU institutions.
1: Now, unlike the, the Paris attacks, the, the government has been talking about this happening for some time. So, in a way, it shouldn't be a shock. Is there a sense, though, of a failure of intelligence here? Is, is the government being blamed for, for not doing enough?
0: I, th- I think there is. I think uh, um, I, particularly last week when the raids happened in Foray and then in, in Molenbeek when Salah Abdeslam was caught, I think people were caught quite unaware by that. Um, there's a sense that things had settled down here somewhat since November um, and there had been expectations by people that, that Salah Abdeslam, this, this man who'd been on the run for the Paris attacks, was not in fact in Brussels, so that he maybe had fled to Syria. Once the revelation came that in fact he has been living in Brussels and probably in the neighbourhood from which he hailed for the last four months, people were very shocked uh, at that. In saying that the Belgian government, the Belgian Prime Minister has been very vocal on the media, there's been a lot of kind of not quite self-congratulatory, but you know, people you know praised the, the, the joint Belgian Franco effort at, at catching this guy last Friday. But now this is given way to shock. So, for example, at Brussels Airport, I was there last night myself and then took the, the metro back. Yes, there are armed police and there are armed soldiers there, but at the end of the day, anybody can walk into the main departures terminal and detonate a bomb. There's no security until you go through the official security. Now, I was in Turkey, for example, recently um, and at the airports there, you can't get in. through the main door without having full security screening so i think questions are going to be asked about the level of security when parties had warned that there was going to be uh, that they were on alert
1: now this is only four days literally after the belgian police captured Saleh Abdeslam, and and it's it seems like almost a response to that uh, two fingers up from from uh, isis
0: well, I think um, what the focus is turning to here now is whether um, were there many accomplices involved in these two coordinated attacks uh, today. For example, the suicide—we bo- now know it was a suicide bomber. Uh, the authorities have confirmed that who uh, detonated uh, an explosion in Br- Brussels Airport this morning. You know, were there accomplices there? Did somebody drop him to the airport? Did people know? So it's very much a developing story here. But there are reports of raids going on now around the city. That you know, we have two parallel. Uh, events we've got the immediate emergency response to this dreadful emergency situation uh, but at the same time we have got a um, maybe a police swoop and an intelligence and security operation to try and see are there any more people involved in these attacks who are out there perhaps plotting uh, further attacks etc uh, so that's the other focus uh, of attention here in brussels at the moment
1: and the and clampdown by the authorities on the press telling them that they're not to report any of this
0: yeah, I've already got slapped on the knuckles myself from somebody on Twitter for reporting about a, an alleged um, uh, raid in one area of Brussels. Uh, people will remember back in November, the uh, Belgian police had to had pleaded with people not to tweet and not to use social media. Uh, because it, what's happening here, I mean, since November, authorities said, more than 100 houses have been raided uh, before last week in in an attempt to find some of these uh, assassins of the the Paris attacks. So obviously people are living among these houses, they see it happening, they see attacks, and they then then tweet, they then inform. So there's been an effort to try and clamp down on that that today as uh, these operations continue throughout the city.
1: The, one of the media reactions which I've seen has, has been to, to, to suggest that this, of course, means the end of any talk of European open borders and the like. But in fact, it does look like it's homegrown terrorists. It does look as if it's very much from the heart of, of, of Belgium itself that these people have, have, have come and have organized. And a lot of Belgians have gone to Syria uh, and some yeah. of them seem to be coming back. So it doesn't really uh, call into question open borders.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the the ironies, if you like, that for all the talk of, of of maybe conflating this issue with the refugee issue, for example, they're completely separate. Because in fact, most of the perpetrators of the Paris attacks and of these had had, had European passports, had Belgian and French passports. Uh, they were homegrown terrorists, if you like. Now, it is true that some had travelled to Syria, and maybe you know should have been monitored. Were they tracked coming back into Europe? But at the end of the day, um, it was Belgian Belgian citizens that seem to have been involved in all these attacks so far so there's serious questions being asked uh, about intelligence uh, about the cultural and and, and social situation that allows this to flourish and also about the level of arms that have been uh, found and have been involved in all these attacks that have taken place Um, there is a some kind of problem with the availability of firearms, of Kalashnikovs in Belgium that's something uh, that the authorities are going to have to look at. How did these people get hold, these guys in their early 20s um, of this kind of level of ammunition and weaponry to carry out these attacks.
1: Thank you very much Suzanne Barack Obama's visit to Cuba marks an important turning point in the relation between the US and the Caribbean island it has tried to isolate for 50 years. Obama stood beside President Raul Castro on Monday and declared a new day of openness between the two states. But old grievances and disputes over human rights uh, have cast a shadow over the groundbreaking meeting and underscored the lingering impediments to a historic thaw. Simon Carswell is, is in Havana. Can you give us a sense of the reception that Obama's got? Is it enthusiasm or curiosity or what?
2: Well, it's an interesting reaction. I would say it's more of curiosity. If you go around to Old Havana, which I did yesterday for several hours, I spoke to people in um, the government run ration shops and in coffee shops, and people are very, they, they admire what Obama's done, they like him, they like the fact that he's trying to, as they see it, improve their lives and really, a lot of people here, the mo- thing they complain most about is there's no access to food and and any food that they can get is extremely expensive. I spoke to one woman yesterday, for example, and she was giving out holding her baby in her arms, saying it cost her uh, 15 Cuban uh, dollars to buy 13 nappies. When, when you think about th- that, the average wage here is $10 uh, a month. It just shows how expensive things are. So people people like the fact that he's here. They like the fact that he's trying to change things. But I, the Cuban people are very much in tune with the American political uh, problems at the moment and the divisions between Republicans and Democrats. And they recognize that Obama needs the support of Congress, which is run by the Republicans in Washington, to be able to lift this 54-year embargo that will make their lives better. So they're welcoming of his visit, but really they're they're not holding out hopes yet of seeing a major change.
1: It's it's not a sort of Kennedy visits Ireland uh, visit then.
2: It's really not. You don't like. There's no posters around the streets. There's no American flags. Uh, you, even though this is um, a state visit, there's no there's no really uh, obvious um, uh, obvious example of seeing on the streets that that uh, Barack Obama is here. Mm. There was a a level of excitement when he toured uh, Old Havana uh, on Sunday night um, and he went to the cathedral but uh, really there was a bit of a dampener put on the whole thing because it was pretty miserable weather and it was raining and uh, and uh People just got a brief bl- glimpse of him as he went around the old town. So there isn't the level of excitement that you'd expect in other countries with the visit of Barack Obama.
1: He's brought a few uh, particular sensitivities to his diplomacy. There's a there's a, an emphasis on baseball, I gather, and on Jose Marti, a tribute to him, a figure uh, clearly loved by both sides in the, in, the, in Cuba's ideological divide.
2: Well, he's very much trying to speak to the Cuban people uh, here. He's um, giving an address uh, this morning, later this morning, to the Cuban people. And he's, his staff has said it's aimed directly at the Cuban people. And then he's attending a baseball game later, and they're baseball mad here in Cuba. So there's a game between the Cuban national team and the Tampa Bay Rays who have come over from Florida. But he's trying very much to make this a visit, not just about politics, but about business. He's brought a number of significant uh, business leaders from the U.S. with him. He's got a congressional team of about uh, 40 senators and members of Congress, including uh, some Republicans, not many, though. Um, So he's trying to uh, not just make this about politics, although that's a key part of his visit here. There is a concern that if there is a Republican in the White House uh, following November's election, he wants to make sure that the changes that he's introduced are irreversible. But really, he needs the he needs Congress to lift the embargo. He said yesterday the list of administrative things that he can do by executive order and by order the Treasury Department and the Department of Transportation. He said it's getting shorter and shorter. So really, he needs the embargo to be lifted to make some of the big changes. But you're going to see significant changes coming even under the. The um, measures that he's introduced, there's going to be a lot more flights from the U.S. coming in, direct flights, commercial flights. There's talk of between 80 and 100 a day, which would overrun the island. And certainly the island isn't uh, capable of coping. And certainly the transport isn't capable of coping with um, that level of, that influx of, of tourists. Um, and they're also looking to establish more businesses here and and a lot of American businesses want to set up here. We had Airbnb, uh, the online um, home rental uh, service here, and they talked about how Cuba is their fastest-growing market because there's a shortage of hotel rooms here for the interest that, for the number of tourists that are coming in, and they're saying that they have 4,000 Cuban homes that people uh, stay in here through Airbnb. So really, it's on something of a cusp of change here but the change isn't move, changes aren't moving as fast as the demand would, would like it, really.
1: And he met uh, Raul Castro, the president, but, but not Fidel Castro. It, was that uh, diplomatic, or is Fidel not just well enough?
2: Well, it's a combination of things. Um, Obama staff was saying yesterday that uh, this is a visit where the head of one country meets the head of another, and that's Raul Castro and Barack Obama, so there'd be no reason for him to meet Fidel Castro. And they also said they haven't raised this. Although Obama did say yesterday that there's question marks around Fidel Castro's health, and really he's no idea whether his health is good enough for him to take a visit. Now Pope Francis was here last September, and there was no plans for him to meet Fidel Castro. Uh, and then uh, a visit emerged. He did a quick stop by of Fidel's home. I'm not sure you're going to see that on this occasion with Barack Obama, because of the uh, I think the political baggage that would come with such a uh, visit by Obama to Fidel Castro um uh, Obama's making it very clear that this visit is as much to talk to the Cuban Americans in places like the exiles in Florida as it is to the Cubans here, so I don't think that would play very well with them and the home audience in the u s
1: Now his big difference with uh, raul is is uh, has been over human rights, and is he making an attempt to reach out to dissidents while he's here? Is there a meeting there happening there today?
2: Yes, he's meeting some of the Cuban dissidents. We're not clear yet as to who he's meeting, but I think you only had to see the protests here. This is the protest by the ladies in white, the group set up by the wives of um, political prisoners. There was a protest. Uh, they do a protest every Sunday, and they did it again on Sunday. Um, there was counter-protest by pro-Castro uh, supporters, and you saw. I was there in the street, and I saw the ladies in white. About fifty of them and other dissidents getting piled into vans by the police and driven off after being arrested. So um, you're seeing, there's obviously major issues around oppression um, of free speech, oppression of democracy. And um, There was quite a, a funny moment in the press conference yesterday, the joint press conference between Castro and Obama. Castro clearly was irritated by the fact that he was getting asked questions, something that he's not used to, and he's certainly not used to holding press conferences. Um, And it kind of startled a lot, um, according to reports here, the Cuban people watching on TV were quite surprised that he was grilled by um, American reporters about the number of political prisoners that were being held. And his response was, well, show me a list, give me a list, and I'll release them tonight. And, of course, the Cuban regime believes that they don't have political prisoners. These are just prisoners who have committed crimes, and they're they're locked up for that reason. Um, But the Obama administration came out later last night and said, well, we give lists of political prisoners to the Cubans all the time in our meetings with them. So that's a clear division that exists between the U.S. and Cuba. And that came out really in the press conference yesterday with um, Obama mentioning that there are serious differences between them and they have frank and candid conversations. And on the other side, Castro saying, well, he had a go at the Americans, saying, well, you know, you don't exactly have an equal society. He said it's inconceivable for a government not to defend the rights of its people to have access to health care and education. So they were back and forth between the two, two leaders. So clearly shows that while there is a restoration of diplomatic ties, there's some serious differences between the two countries.
1: And of course, this is very much part of Obama's building of, uh, of a political legacy for his, his departure from the, from the presidency. Is, is, this, is it going to go down as one of the uh, landmarks of his foreign policy uh, legacy?
2: I think it will. I mean, I think people were who were who struggling here, and certainly it was a subject of discussion amongst the uh, the international and American media here as to what is this a Berlin Wall coming down moment for the Obama administration, or is it like in our own case, is it like the Clintons in Northern Ireland with the visit of the Clintons to Belfast in Northern Ireland in 1995? And I think it's it's one of the few wins that um, that Obama can claim on foreign policy. While he has the Iran deal, I don't think you're going to see Air Force One flying into Tehran um, and uh, uh, boasting about that deal. So really, this is an area that this is a, a, a country that he can claim a win in, and uh, the fact that the Middle East is 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 still in such disarray that uh, this this is this is a place that he can say, well. I've ended more than half a century of Cold War tensions. And the fact that he's brought such a large contingent from his own White House as well as from Congress shows that he and fellow Democrats are trying to claim this as a win. And it is. It's a major foreign policy uh, achievement for Obama and for his presidency.
1: And, of course, within, within uh, the U.S., the mood in the Cuban-American community has sh- shifted. There's been a sea change of attitude there to links with, with uh, Cuba.
2: I think there has. I think there's a realism as well, and you certainly hear that here in Havana, that, you know, that people can't understand the politics of it. Uh, and Obama himself said it when he announced on, on, made that announcement on December 17, 2014, that you know, the, the policy of the past just hasn't worked, and uh, the fact that it's uh, gone on for so long shows that it hasn't worked. He made much of the fact that he was born two years after Fidel Castro seized power in that revolution. So, And this isolation has existed since then. So he said we need to do something different, and the fact that there's such a a large market of people so close, it's only 145 kilometers off the southern tip of Florida, that this is an opportunity for American businesses, but also he sees it as an opportunity to try and improve the lives of Cuban people. Um, So I think there is a sea change both in the United States and here that it's about time, and you hear that a lot hear a lot from people. I've spoken to a number of American tourists who came here this week, and they, they said that. They said, it's long overdue. This is a change that should have taken place a long, long time ago.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. Back in 1988, a then-maverick socialist activist declared that in Brazil, a poor man goes to jail when he steals. When a rich man steals, he becomes a minister. The words have You're come back with a vengeance the Irish to times haunt the activist, ex-president Lula, who has sensationally been implicated in Brazil corruption scandals. Is there a chance he's going to be indicted, and will the scandal also bring down his successor and protégé Dilma Rousseff? In Brazil, where the long-running Petrobras corruption scandal has at last spectacularly reached into the office of the president, she has attempted to appoint Lula to the cabinet to thwart judicial investigation, but a judge has thrown out the appointment. Tom Hennigan, what is going on? It's all a bit like a bad soap opera.
3: It it really is, and um, all last week Brazilians were agog just following the news, and it seemed like every few hours there were various um, political bombshells going off. And towards the middle uh, of the week, it, there was um, a real sense of and um, the possibility that the that the government could fall at any moment. So you're not far wrong saying that there's a, a touch of a soap opera about it. Um, but what there's two things I think going on uh, that President Rousseff is trying to do with uh, Lula. Uh, one, she unfortunately, um, for her own for her own place in history and for her Workers Party, has proven to be a very incompetent president. And for many people, that's not altogether surprising because it's her first ever elected um, a job. Before then, she was a technocrat who won fame implementing other people's uh, policy decisions when she has had the top job herself she has proven to be quite incompetent and she has let this crisis which started two years ago spiral out of all control to where it now threatens her presidency so I think many people in the workers party said look you need to get Lula back into your government because he knows how to deal with this and so she appointed him um, to be her very powerful cabinet uh, uh, chief kind of equivalent of a prime minister but as well as that, there is also, as you pointed out, the fact that Lula has been investigated as one of the beneficiaries of the Petrobras corruption scandal. And the judge who is leading that investigation is believed to be getting very close to ordering Lula's arrest um, as part of his investigation. And so there seems to have been a, a thinking within the administration that if we can nominate Lula a minister then he can, his arrest can only be ordered by the Supreme Court, which in Brazil tends to act at a much more uh, leisurely pace than some of the lower courts. And that by um, having Lula's investigation moved from this federal judge to the Supreme Court, that would prevent Lula going to jail. So those two things are going on at the same time. The federal judge investigating Lula was recording his phone calls. And he recorded a conversation between President Rousseff and Lula last week, which seemed to indicate that the reason that, or one of the reasons that Rousseff was appointing Lula minister was to prevent his arrest as part of the Petrobras investigation. And that led to um, several injunctions being lodged at the Supreme Court trying to bar uh, Lula's um, being uh, sworn in as a minister and this Supreme Court judge has accepted um, one of those motions and has barred Lula's immediate appointment to the ministry, and that now needs to be debated by the full Supreme Court, which we believe will only happen on the 30th of April. So we're in a kind of a limbo situation now where the government has appointed Lula uh, a minister to try and save it, yet he cannot take on the job formally as of yet, and while he waits for the Supreme Court to debate whether he can be sworn in as minister, he runs the risk of being arrested for his role in the Petrobras um, investigation. So it's a real um, tense sense of polarization and paralyzation uh, in the Brazilian government at the moment.
1: And that, of course, the judge Moro has actually, in the, in the course of taping Lula, has started taping the president's phone calls. And, and that is, that's surely an overstretch of judicial power
3: jurors do agree that and um, to tape the president you need to get uh, permission from the supreme court and that only the supreme court can investigate or charge the president in brazil but what moro and brazil's chief uh, federal prosecutor have argued is that they were not taping uh, president russoff that in fact they were taping lula who is a private citizen as part of a criminal investigation and it was because Rousseff, President Rousseff, rang Lula on the phone that they were um, taping, uh, recording, that that is how the conversation happened. But there has been a lot of controversy about what Moro has done, that he has overstepped the line. The the Workers' Party are claiming that we're now living in a state of exception in Brazil, that the rule of law has been undermined by part of the judiciary. But then you have a lot of other people um, who have come out in defense of, of Judge Moro Jurists who have come out and said that uh, basically he is trying to unravel a criminal conspiracy and that there were signs that the effort to block him, uh, part of the effort to block him from doing so, was to get Lula out of his clutches before he could arrest him. So the action has deeply, deeply polarised Brazil.
1: And of course, uh, embroiled, embroiled the president in the process. What is it that Lula was alleged to have done?
3: Well, they are a couple of um, lines of investigation. The depeche bus uh, investigation has been going on now for two years and has become this huge, sprawling case that is increasingly dragging in more and more elements of Brazil's business and political elites. Uh, Lula is accused by certain of the of the defendants in the case who have provided testimony as part of plea bargaining agreements as having been the overall godfather of this scheme that he as president sat at the very top of the brazilian power structure and he therefore was the one who let petrobras and other state uh, entities be looted by politicians and and, and uh, business leaders in return for political support um, and then there's a a subset of that investigation which says that lula personally benefited from this that he was going to receive a triplex beachfront and apartment from one of the main uh, building construction companies uh, that has been uh, not just charged, but actually convicted in the Petrobras case. And that this same company with another one also uh, did up a country estate that, everything seems to indicate was in the control of, the, of, the, of Lula's family, but in name, it's actually been held by friends of the family who claimed that they just let the Lula family use it. Um, but prosecutors claim that actually, no, this was an attempt by Lula and his family to hide that they had materially benefited from the Petrobras scheme.
1: And this is really quite shocking because um, until now, Lula, um, whatever about uh, the many people who worked under him and who've been tarnished with corruption, Lula himself had a very clean reputation.
3: Lula's um, huge political appeal, which is diminished but is still very large in Brazil, is based on him being a humble man of the people, uh, a man with humble tastes, if you can put it that way, uh, someone who preferred brazilian cachaça rather than french wines who didn't um necessarily speak uh, portuguese very well and that was always sort of seen as lula having remained completely in touch with uh, his his working class roots despite his rise all the way up to the presidency and and there has never been any real uh allegation before that lula sought to personally or have his family personally benefit from power but in fact even before Lula became president his workers party has been involved in a number of corruption scandals that it did a lot to try and cover up at the time or um, as happened during his own presidency nearly brought down his presidency in 2005 but Lula was able to shift blame uh, saying that he knew nothing about what had happened and shift the blame onto some of his closest Um, collaborators in the party, people that he had founded the party with and that had together worked to get him to the presidency. So uh, there is a certain amount of uh, surprise that now it's coming out that Lula might, um, or his family might have personally benefited from power. But I don't think there are many people who believe that Lula was not at least aware of some of the corruption schemes that were being um, operated by his Workers' Party going back as early as the, as the, the 1990s.
1: And there, there is talk uh, also now of 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 a potential impeachment of of uh, Dilma Rousseff.
3: Yes, uh, she is facing an impeachment motion in the lower house. Uh, it installed a committee that will examine uh, the impeachment request. It's not directly connected to the Petrobras scandal. It is that she broke budgetary rules, uh, which allowed her to ramp up spending ahead of the, uh, the 2014 presidential election campaign when she was reelected. But the fact is that the that the lower house now looks set to recommend impeachment and pass it over to trial by uh, her over for trial by the Senate. And the reason that that is happening is because of the political impact of the Petrobas scandal, which is now involved. Lula, she is now involved in it as well. And as her support is melting away um, and her coalition government begins to disintegrate, because of the of the Petrobras scandal, that has given greater uh, strength to the impeachment request going through, and it's not just um, that she faces impeachment. Many of the of the polit- uh, of the businessmen convicted already in the Petrobras scandal have given indications that they helped illegally finance her 2010, and we're now increasingly believing her 2014 election campaign with money stolen from Petrobras. And if the electoral court, uh, Brazil's top electoral court, uh, agrees with um, that, that, that there's enough evidence to prove that they could cancel her mandate as well. So she's facing multiple threats now to getting to the end of her term.
1: And, and of course, the, the whole crisis has spilled out onto the streets with, with massive demonstrations and counter demonstrations in, in the big cities.
3: It has. And, th- you know, this is also um, driving the impeachment um, request through Congress. Uh, a lot of politicians are now looking at what happened uh, Sunday a week ago in Brazil when you had potentially several million people on the streets demanding that, uh, that Rousseff resign. Um, and the PT's effort to mobilize on Friday uh, around the country was somewhat successful, but the numbers were far lower what the opposition had managed to to get out five days before but it did show that if the PT decide to fight this to the end fight against any effort to jail Lula as part of the Petrobras scandal or to fight against the impeachment request they have the capacity still to mobilize a significant sector of Brazil's left in its defense so so the country really is now polarized in a way that many observers say that they cannot remember in and any other time in recent decades the last time brazil impeached a president was in the early 90s when fernando Collor was impeached and at that time by the time the congress started debating his fate no one was left supporting him but now we have a situation where the majority In opinion polls and in demonstrations have shown that they want Rousseff to leave, but there is still a significant minority backing Lula, so the country is, I would agree, dangerously polarised at the moment.
1: Thanks to Suzanne Lynch, Tom Hennigan and Simon Carswell, to our producer Declan Conlon and Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.